So when, whenever you, you Oh, okay. Invite. Sure. Uh, yeah, so my name is Jason Smith. I'm a Jungian analyst. I'm the author of the book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. Uh, I host a podcast called Digital Jung, which is kind of a companion podcast for the book, uh, in which I talk about the idea of living a symbolic life in a technological age. I'm past president of the Jung Institute of Boston, uh, and I'm an a instructor and a training analyst for the, uh, the New England Jung Institute. And I have a private great. practice here. Sorry, I have a private practice here in Manchester by the Sea, Massachusetts. And I just want to say I'm a really big fan of Digital Young. Um, Thank you. When I first started uh, exploring Young, uh, it was a, it, it has been a great um, resource for kind of demonstrating the day to day relevance of Jungian thought. Um, and just the role of the numinous and the symbolic uh, in, in contemporary life. Uh, I, I also want to comment, it is one of the most pleasant to the ears podcasts I've come across. It, it, it's, it's uniquely non-abrasive and just kind of meditative. Uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so... Um, we agreed to talk about your concept of religious but not religious. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, it's it's a evocative phrase. And uh, so yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, I, I would turn to you to say, what, what would that mean to be religious but not religious? Sure, sure. Um, well, so... Religious but not religious, obviously, is it's a play on that phrase, spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find is that, you know, the public discourse about religion uh, is pretty simplistic and um, not very helpful, right? It, it tends to be... Um, uh, approached in terms of oppositions, right? Uh, science versus religion or being spiritual but not religious. Um, and the idea of being religious but not religious is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, essentially, right? It, that human beings uh, have been engaged in in religion and uh, religious practices for hundreds of thousands of years. And from a Jungian perspective, uh, it points to what he calls a religious function of the psyche. The, the psyche, uh, our human nature, there's something that naturally tends towards that production of religious symbols, engagement with religious symbols, and so, uh, well, kind of holding that skepticism and the challenges that modern life uh, kind of present to 
the, the religious dimension of things. Right? We live in a world where uh, we cannot be isolated from the fact that uh, there are uh, innumerable ex religious expressions, right? That we're, we're aware of all the different uh, ways of engaging the religious dimension. Um, we're not enclosed in a sort of self-enclosed faith bubble. The, the diversity and the sort of the, the global awareness makes it impossible to be narrow in our understanding of what religious is, re religion is. And so holding the sort of the challenges that come with that and uh, the recognition that we can't be too uh, concrete or literal, so we have to be kind of not religious, at the same time holding the fact that the religious function is essential to human health and happiness. And so without getting literal or without kind of getting too exclusive in our view of, of religion, we need to hold this kind of both-and position as opposed to an either-or that uh, science and religion, for instance, are not uh, natural enemies. They're not opposed to each other. Um, the spiritual is not opposed to uh, a, a more institutional religion. Um, and that, that the institutions, even though there are difficulties, hold vast stores of knowledge and wisdom that we need, frankly. Uh, and so holding that kind of uh, whole vision, the both end of recognizing the importance, but also uh, recognizing that uh, we live in a different age and we have to have a different kind of relationship to religion than maybe we might have had in the past. So you're, you're describing the condition of modernity where it is hard, um, even if it's desirable for many people to believe in a, believe in the underlying um, cosmology of older uh, spiritual religion, uh, spiritual traditions. Um, yet that need to, well, not even need, but tendency for the psyche to organize itself in a religious way persists. So you're, you're describing a way of, it sounds like holding the, holding the belief aspect of it a little lightly so as to continue engaging um, in the parts of it that help us organize our, ourselves and our interaction with the world. Um, you know, I, a question I, I tend to ask is what would that look like? But for this, it, 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 I'm less interested, at least right now, in what it would look like, but what would it internally be like to engage in, let's say, ritual, something that uh, connects us to, you know, would ideally connect us to this feeling of the numinous, of the transcendent? Um, while, you know, potentially having the nagging thought in your head of this isn't real, this is, this is right. you, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, because the idea of ritual kind of points right into the, the challenge of it. We live at a time when we privilege the experience of the mind, right? Um, and so this idea of belief, is it true or is it not true? Is it real or is it not real? Um, and uh, the way that we conceive of what's real uh, is either in terms of uh, uh, our senses, does it, does it have a, uh, a concrete reality? Can we touch it, taste it, uh, smell it, see it? Um, or through the rational, right? Through ideas, through uh, our categories of thought. Um, and, and, and those are sort of the two dimensions. And there's a third dimension that we don't quite remember how to engage. We, we've, we've kind of lost the, the skill for engaging it, which is what I would call a kind of relational dimension. Uh, to be related to something, um, if I'm in a relationship or if I'm related to somebody, I don't necessarily uh, um, kind of think first about my thought of them or like I don't need to touch them. I, I, I just engage with what's present before me. Uh, and, and it's that piece, that relational piece that I think ritual is about because ritual involves a participation. You go into an action with your whole being, with your mind, with your body, uh, and, and with your feelings, and you're engaged in it. And Karen Armstrong, who's written a lot about religion, talks about how uh, the way that it works, the way that the religious kind of dimension works is that it's different than uh, approaching it from a scientific point of view where you have to establish the truth of a proposition first and then you can kind of act on it. With the religious dimension, you have to kind of engage it. You have to act in those ritual and ethical and um, uh, relational ways in order to experience what all of those are pointing to. You can't have the experience of something transcendent unless you're engaging it. And so there's a kind of play involved in this, a kind of willing suspension of disbelief and, and a kind of acting as if in order to make contact with realities that essentially can't be contacted in any other way. Mm -hmm. And so it takes, that's partly where, where the idea of faith comes in. It takes a certain faith that if I act in this way, uh, I might have an experience and then I can start to think about my experience. Yeah, I, I, I've, of course, filtering this all kind of through my own um, interface with reality and, um, and, and the 
the kind of question of like what's going on here and um when you were saying that the, the, the way i started thinking about it was you know there's that um there's that idea that we can't really tell for sure the difference between life and dream um yeah. because when you talk to someone in a dream you're not questioning if it's a dream you're just talking to someone right uh and, and you have a relationship with them, a pre-established relationship. In what we think of as our real lives, we don't, I'm, like, it didn't occur to me to ask, like, okay, is Jason real or am I dreaming right now? I, I'm just relating to you. Right. Um, so that, that kind of applying that just act as though. Because that, because that's in that's the realm you're in anyway, right now. Right. It's kind of that's how I'm integrating what you're saying. Right. I think that's that's exactly right. Uh, we don't uh, we don't have that question. We make the assumption, and yet we don't know how much of the other person, the, the reality and the truth of the other person, we're engaging with apart from our own fantasies about that other person, our own kind of um, uh, projections that we might be putting onto the situation, uh, it's colored by a lot of things. And the only way really that we meet something, whether it's another person in real life, in waking life, or another figure in dream life, or a figure in, say, uh, meditative or prayer life, we meet them in the same place, at least from Jung's point of view, which is on the field of consciousness, in the psyche. We interact with uh, something that takes the form of an image on the field of the psyche. And, and in that way, all of those different experiences all have psychological reality. Yeah. I, I like how you said it. It's, it's a leap of faith. It's engage. You know, it, what comes to mind is, you know, we, even though it's an increasingly secular society um it's also a you know the majority of americans are uh from christian backgrounds and if not that usually some abrahamic background um where there is a prohibition against engaging with spirituality outside of the boundaries of of the faith um, so for instance, a, uh, a, a Catholic is probably not going to, uh, you know, I, I'm saying probably, but you know, there's people do all sorts of things, but sure. many Catholics might, uh, not attend a seance or some, you know, something that might be considered the occult, something like yeah. that. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, there's a double bind where, they no longer believe 
in the tradition they were brought up in. They don't get the positive aspects of it. Uh, the, the belief in an afterlife, so the comfort around death, uh, the belief in salvation, things like that. But the fear, the prohibition remains. And I, 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 I would imagine that that creates a, an unfortunate place where there's another barrier to that religious but not religious um, way of life. Sure. Uh, I, I think that's probably very true. And we can add to that uh, people who have been uh, wounded in some way or traumatized by their religious experience to enter willingly into any kind of symbolic tradition uh, becomes fraught with a, a lot of difficulties um, and, and kind of crossing that barrier becomes very hard to do. Um, and so it, it, it's, it, it's not just a simple uh, move for a lot of people. I mean, there are many people who do not grow up in a strong tradition uh, you know, we, we see that there's a, a kind of increase in what are known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who have no religious affiliation. Um, and on some level, they're in a better position to be able to engage because they don't come with kind of... Uh, um, those sort of prohibitions in place. Yeah. On the other hand, the problem that they have is they don't have a lot of the language and they don't have a lot of mm -hmm. the, the imagery and the symbolism um, and an experience of engaging with it. And so it, it feels artificial in some way. And so there, are, there certainly are a lot of barriers around that. The problem of being outside of um, a system or, or some way of engaging uh, the transcendent, whatever that, however that manifests, without some kind of symbolic relationship, is that um, those energies and those dynamics persist without some kind of container it's our own psyches our own nervous systems our own bodies that become the containers and there are experiences that are shattering if there's not a way of being able to think and feel about them they can just become uh, a kind of trauma in and of themselves hmm. so the the, the the challenges and the dangers around it are, there's plenty of them. So it's very difficult to, um, to kind of take up the, the kind of religious but not religious approach. Yeah. What would be, you know, before I ask, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a heads up that where I'm at, where I'm going is kind of, 
the benefits of the religious but not religious approach. But before I ask that, I think probably, and this might end up answering that, is what would it mean to live a, a, a full, and, and you kind of hinted at that, uh, you know, that traumatizing experience, but to live a fully non-religious life. And I mean non-religious and also not religious. Right, right. No engagement with the symbolic, I suppose. Yes. Um, as long as it works, it's fine. Right? As long as people are able to go along and live their lives and feel some measure of engagement with their life, it's fine. Uh, nothing is missed. Nothing is wanted. Uh, and if people are able to do it without, uh, without engaging in any kind of spiritual or symbolic or religious tradition, uh, that's great. And for many people, to a certain extent, we all live within some kind of myth, right? Some kind of story. Our myth uh, involves uh, a kind of uh, uh, the everyday experience of going to work and uh, having a family, perhaps, relationship, home, um, being part of the, uh, the collective in some way. And as long as that functions for people, uh, there isn't really an issue. The problem happens is when it stops functioning, right? When you start to ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Or why should I do this? Or what's the point of all of this? And the moment you start asking that question, then you've entered into this place of uh, the religious dimension. And for Jung, the idea, he talks about how we've lost what he calls the symbolic life. We don't have it. Um, and without that, without some sense of our participation in a story that's larger than ourselves, some experience that's larger, then life is just getting and spending. Life is just, he calls it banal, uh, the grinding mill. And there's this longing for a certain kind of transcendence beyond our merely personal lives. Uh, and those become acute during times of suffering, loss, illness, death, um, trauma where we start to go, okay, I need a bigger meaning here. I need something that will sustain me because I can't just do it myself. So to live without it means that you are the carrier of like your own motivation, your own meaning and purpose. Um, and that functions as long as it functions. And then when it stops, we need something else. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, I also wonder if if people if anyone actually does it or if somebody always if people are always investing well are usually even very secular people 
uh, uh, very non-religious people, uh, are, are still investing in some uh, larger myth. Um, I think about this, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably misremembering it. I listened to it years ago. But it was this interview with a woman who grew up in the Soviet Union. And um, she talked about, you know, it, it was never a question of what are, what are, are you going to do when you grow up? Because, you know, you, you're not, yeah, you might have this job or that job. But for her and her family, the answer is like, well, we're, we're working on building communism. We're working towards this project. Uh, and that's in a very secular, like, and even much more so secular society than ours. Um, and, you know, I, there's, that's very explicit because it's, it's, there's an end goal. Um, but, I, I, you know, in our, uh, in our country and uh, Western countries in general, that might be a little bit less etched out, like... Uh, what what are things moving towards? But people, I I, I imagine fully uh, people who have no investment in any kind of um, spiritual symbolism often are still building some idea of what the collective is moving towards, uh, whether it be some kind of humanism or um, what have you. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, no doubt that that's true, whether that's ever conscious or whether it's more implicit and unconscious, a sense of um, the purpose of things. Um, and it may be that uh, what sustains them is the... Uh, the community around them, the, the sort of the collective world in which they're they're embedded, the family uh, ethos. Um, but you're right, humanism, uh, um, the fight for social justice becomes uh, a means by which uh, purpose and meaning are engaged. Um, and then also, uh, when that dimension of experience doesn't have uh, sort of traditional outlets, it can often take other outlets. So uh, there's a study that showed that um, people who, many people who don't have a traditional religious uh, belief system uh, will often develop things like the belief in UFOs, and they'll start to uh, um, get involved in that. Or we could see in uh, a number of conspiracy theories that come up where that energy gets channeled into some meaning uh, that then has the highest level of intensity, the highest level of value that people are passionately engaged in. You know, it makes me think about like in, uh, particularly in in the uh, first decade of of this century, the two thousands. Feel weird saying the two thousands because it feels like we're still, you know, it still feels new. The the twenty prefix. Yeah. So, um, 
uh, but there was this, you know, the, the whole movement of new atheism, of uh, uh, this very militant um, kind of antagonistic atheism, Richard Dawkins, um, and that, the intensity of that suggests that there's this feeling of this is an important thing. Like, like it, there's a, you know, I, you know, I'm not uh, breaking new ground by saying there's a religious dimension to it, but there's a dimension of, no, we're in a project. And, and for this project to work, we have to get rid of religion, um, right. which in its own way sounds religious, but not religious. Right. Right, it becomes its own crusade, right? Yeah, and uh, and the the passion with which it's invested, um, and even you know when we start to use phrases like um, "I believe in science," right? We talk about belief, which is this word that belongs in the kind of religious and spiritual traditions in terms of science, which isn't a field of belief. It's a field of experiment and knowledge. Um, and so, uh, you know, th there's this way in which uh, it keeps leaking out, right? You can't really repress it. As, as Freud said, the, the repressed will return, and it will return in some other form or a distorted form. And I think we see that all over. Um, the attempt to repress or suppress something doesn't make it go away. It gives it a new and sometimes sort of virulent kind of life and, and makes it potentially darker and more dangerous. And is that when, you know, you said when it doesn't work, when not, when, when not being religious, but not religious doesn't work, when not engaging with um, the symbolic in that way, it, it, is that what, is that when it doesn't work, when that uh, organizing, that part of our mind, of our engagement with the world that organizes in that way starts trying to interface with other uh, ideas or aspects of the world in, in kind of maladaptive ways. Uh, am I reading, am I connecting the dots right? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that is one of the ways when it doesn't work, right, where... Um, um, we have this sort of leaking out, as I as I said, um, and it comes in the religious dimension comes in in a um, in an unconscious and in a distorted form. Um, that's in the case, I think, in those. Uh, the situations where uh, uh, it's this kind of fight against something or, the, or this sort of this passionate attempt to eliminate something. For others who just 
it doesn't even register, right? It doesn't even register to think about the religious dimension. It's not a, a an issue. When it, the the not working in that case is um, that loss of a sense of coherence to life. Like it just does things don't make sense. I, I don't know the point of kind of going on. Why is this happening to me? Um, that that's the other side where suffering intervenes and then we need some way of metabolizing the the, the dark realities of life suffering illness death those kinds of things so uh the, the way you said it, like what that that kind of what is this? What's going on? I mean, there is the wonder of life is like one way. Like, like really, what is this? Like, it's you just blink into existence, and and there's no context for it. It's you're you're not giving you're not given any primer. Um, you're, you, you know, you, at first, at first you kind of accept it as, you know, cause you're coming online mentally and you're like, right. okay, I got a hand person. And, uh, and then I think later in life it, it can be like, what the, what is this? Like, right. why am I something instead of nothing? Why is it this in particular? Um, and engaging in some kind of tradition can be a way of grounding, of, of giving context to, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely can. I think it's important maybe at this point to kind of bring in a couple of distinctions too. One is uh, a, a, a distinction that Jung makes between what he calls religion and what he calls a creed. And, and he sees these two things as very different, right? Um, religion is, for Jung, something closer to what we tend to call spirituality now, right? Um, but he prefers the word religion for it because he's got a number of sort of etymological reasons to, to prefer that word religion. And creed is the system of belief, right? The particular uh, faith tradition. And what happens with the creed uh, it, it grows up out of an experience. So there's an original experience, some encounter with uh, a powerful sense of the numinous. And, and over time, uh, uh, the process of reflecting on that, groups of people reflecting on it, groups of people engaged in sort of ritual remembrances to try to, to keep in touch with that, uh, 
a religion develops, a, a tradition develops, which is the creed. And the creed serves to provide a connection back to the original experience until it starts to harden and get rigid and become sort of no longer transparent to transcendence. The religion becomes about the religion instead of about connecting the individual to what's beyond, to what ultimately can't be known. And at that point, it becomes uh, uh, something that doesn't allow the, the, the life energy to come through. And for Jung, religion is, he calls it um, dependence on and submission to the irrational facts of experience mm. and it's a way of engaging the transcendent the numinous uh, and uh, allowing oneself to be affected by it and so for for Jung it it's important to distinguish between a religious attitude and a religious belief religion as a thing the the thingness of it and religion as uh, a, a kind of attitude or uh, uh, a movement of some kind an experience of some kind as long as the tradition and the creed allows for an authentic engagement with mystery as long as it remains more of a question than an answer, mm. it can function. I, I try to think of the, you know, the, the, the work of religion or even the idea of God as questions that we address to the universe. The answers are always going to be inadequate. Mm. The, the answers are not going to encompass things. We need a means of relationship. Mm. And that's that's the important distinction can we be related to the infinite uh, or um, are we just related to a point of dogma mm. that's very different so somebody who wants that relationship that relationship to the numinous the transcendent um but so I, I see because I would imagine that there's this experience of attempts to engage in it. You know, people during crises sometimes kind of go religion shopping, right. attend a couple different houses of worship, and um, I don't think that usually when people do that, they find the religion that they stick with. Um, because I, I, I think often there's the, this experience of you're stepping into a pre-existing tradition that you don't really have much context for, and you don't, there's no point of connection. And because there's no point of connection to the dogma, there's no, you can't even, you can't, you certainly can't get whatever spark of the transcendent still remains in it. Um, 
Right. How does one approach that then? Uh, how does one try to get that into their lives? Yeah, that's, that's the key question. You know, I think that people who have had uh, an earlier religious experience, you know, uh, uh, someone who was raised Catholic, who leaves um, and then has the one of those life crises, may return and find now they can engage it in a different way. They've got the background, they've got the language, they've got some of the understanding, and that can often be successful. But if we don't have that sense, and it feels artificial, right? You can't just prescribe religion, okay? Uh, you know, I would choose for you uh, Buddhism, go do that. Um, if that's not something that's coming up out of the individual themselves, uh, it, it's not likely to, to necessarily take root, right? What we need are ways of experiencing the numinous. We need to have an experience of the reality of the numinous and to feel the experiential truth of something. And the answer in Jungian psychology is to do your own psychological uh, inner work, which is not just about um, managing your um, mental health sim symptoms, right? That's a, obviously a piece of it, but it's about becoming familiar with the activity of your own psyche. How does your psyche work? What do you meet in your dreams? What do you meet in your daily fantasies? What are your projections? When you start to have a, a, a deep experience of your own being and you encounter aspects of your own being that are outside of your control, your willing, right? We have experiences, we have emotions, uh, um, uh, reactions to things that we don't necessarily choose. And it's, it's in coming into relationship with those things, that's partly where those powers that exist, those kind of... Uh, transcendent powers uh, tend to reside first and foremost. Before we encounter the symbolic nature of something, we probably first encounter the symptomatic nature of something. And so mm. getting a deeper understanding of our symptoms and trying to find a way to link that to some 
archetypal truth, some underlying uh, universal human truths, helps us connect our personal story to a larger story. And then we start to get a sense of being involved in something that's more than us, that's larger than us. Often out of that, certain images, certain kinds of symbolic experiences uh, tend to uh, maybe assert themselves more than others, um, either picking up on an old uh, tradition it might draw from one's kind of latent uh, but mostly unconscious Christian background. It might reach out to uh, other symbols from other traditions, or it might be something else entirely. Um, but for Jung, connecting those with uh, uh, their larger archetypal uh, background helps us get connected to those larger stories. And, and, and that experience then makes it possible to recognize where the action is actually happening. It's not happening in the, uh, you know, recitation of a particular prayer. It's happening in the experience. That recitation might become a tool or a means through which you can access it. Um, but it's, it's not the, ever the thing itself. For young, that engagement uh, with the internal world and the, you know, what you might encounter there, uh, if I understand correctly, was mostly accomplished, well, not mostly, but in a large part accomplished through that method of active imagination, of right. looking inward, kind of engaging with these you know, psychic entities uh, and having that inform his life and, and, and the way he lived. Right. There's also the idea of, as you said, doing that with your dreams too. Really, t you know, uh, taking your dreams seriously and the things you encounter in them and In what ways should these encounters with themes, um, images, personifications uh, in our psychic life, in what ways should we engage with them? How, do, how should they in, inform our life? I mean, you mentioned connecting them to um, larger archetypes. Um, what, what, what does that mean? And um, what would that mean for an individual? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that Jung writes about is how mythological language, talking about gods and spirits and things like that um, has an advantage over uh, 
scientific conceptualizations of things. And, and what he means is that uh, the concept is always an abstraction and it's always a kind of generalized notion of abstracted out of a, a, a particular experience. And it, it gives us distance from things. And that's really valuable. We can step back and we can look at something and we can categorize it and understand it and make sense of it and make use of it. Uh, and it's enormously um, um, successful to be able to do that. The, the mythological language, though, makes it into this relationship, this engagement where you enter into the drama yourself. You are in relationship with uh, an other. And when we lose, um, you know, the old language of spirits, uh, we don't have that way of engaging with an other. Um, we get caught up in our own experiences, right? Our own uh, emotions and things like that, which we identify with. And so one way in, to sort of understand this is uh, when we have an experience, an emotional experience, like anger, we tend to say, naturally enough, I am angry, right? And in that way, we identify with it. We are it. I am angry. I am the anger uh, that's here. I am the same as the anger. Jung's move with active imagination and with dream work is to do something like uh, shift it so that we're saying, okay, anger is present here. Anger is happening to me or anger is confronting me in some way. And we're now sort of trying to differentiate from it, right? And we're now trying to say, okay, what is anger doing here? What does anger want? What's its goal here? Is that a functional goal? Uh, is there another way to meet it? Is there something that um, uh, I'm not embodying that makes uh, anger so prevalent here? Um, or, uh, you know, is there a way in which I'm not adequately holding a, a kind of place of self-assertion uh, so that things be become distorted and become angry and, and, and that. And so by, by trying to engage it as an other, we can start to transform it. So that's that's the that's the the underlying idea that the, the that question of connecting it to the archetype uh, is to start to recognize that anger or something like that um, is not just my problem. It's not just you know I have an anger issue. It's to recognize that. Anger is a fundamental experience of human existence. And it's been personified in uh, 
different forms. You know, the Greeks had the god Ares, for instance, the god of war, um, or they had uh, uh, Zeus, who would get angry and hurl his thunderbolts, uh, those kinds of things. Or Hera, who would get jealous and cause disruption. They are archetypal realities. They are uh, human invariants, right? experiences from time immemorial that all humans engage and so if we're able to start to free ourselves from like oh, I'm, I'm so uh it's such it's my problem i'm i'm so uh, kind of uh uh lost in anger and i've got to figure out my anger problem and i've got to get rid of this in my life we take it as a personal responsibility and we try to get rid of something that cannot be got rid of ultimately. Um, it's bound to fail on some level, but if we start to go, okay, this is a, this is an archetypal reality. Uh, in what way is this playing out in my life and what kind of aspect of human life am I encountering here? It connects us to this sort of larger experience, the human experience, and, and makes us a part of uh, the human race in a way that we haven't been before. Oh, uh, there is a need for, uh, for a little bit of uh, war-like energy or, um, you know, there's something destructive at work here and, and, and just being able to reflect on it and to think about it and to be freed from the personal uh, and what Jung calls to be freed from uh, the merely biological, that it's just a problem with our, our, our biology, bi biology or uh, physiology. So, if we were to take anger and okay, I have anger as this problem in my life, I'm going to look at it as its own entity. I'm going to look at how other people historically have engaged with that. And that might give me some idea how to. Mm -hmm. There is a question that who is the me in that in that uh relationship you know we're we're not going if we're not going to identify with all of these parts of ourselves where are we centered yeah yeah and that's a great question because that's like that's the core of jungian psychology right there essentially the center of our consciousness, according to Jung, is the ego, mm -hmm. uh, which originally, um, when Freud uh, came up with the concept of the ego, he called it uh, the I, the ich. Uh, it's the I, the I sense. So our ego is that thing that we call I. And th through that, I or that me, we can direct life energies to certain tasks. For Jung, 
what is ultimately needed is a shift from ego to self. And, and self in the Jungian tradition is often capitalized. So the idea of the self is different from what we normally talk about is in terms of myself uh, or something like that. The self for Jung is uh, the totality of the psyche, the totality of consciousness and unconsciousness. All that we know about ourselves and all that we don't know about ourselves or don't yet know about ourselves. Um, and that center, uh, you know, that shift to that center is puts us in a place where we are to a large extent partly mysterious to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because a large aspect of our existence is unconscious to us. And not just like inside us, not just in me, but all around me, right? All of uh, my environment and uh, things that are happening uh, that I don't know about that eventually are going to affect me somewhere along the way. Uh, that larger self is the, uh, the center and the shift is to be able to um, bring the I, the ego, into awareness of that larger self, that, that, that larger dimension of experience, a wider life. Um, and that is what, um, to personify it a little bit, uh, speaks to us through our dreams. That is what speaks to us as the other in active imagination. Um, And ultimately, the experience of the self, Jung will say in his writings, is ultimately indistinguishable from the experience of a God image. God experience and the self experience are uh, hard to separate, hard to tell the difference. He's not saying the self is God, but the, the experience of that, of a larger dimension, which is mysterious in part, and which when we're in connection with us, with it, infuses our life with energy and meaning and um a sense of being part of something larger. So that's that's the shift. The the ego becomes an observing ego, and and um, be, becomes aware of these other movements that are happening sort of outside of consciousness. You cut out for just a moment, and it was uh, while you were saying something very important. And I think you said the ego becomes an observing ego. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So the ego is the sense of self, the sense of who we are, kind of boundaried, kind of um, categorized, etched out. Uh, you know, not consciously, but curated 
in a way. Um, and it is, you know, for, for most of life, it is partially etched out of denial, denial of everything that is around it and mysterious and wants to be dis disavowed within psychic life. Um, and ultimately, it sounds like you want to replace that denial with a curiosity and with a perhaps a reverence for, yeah. yeah. Yes. One of the things that Jung says, and I, I don't have the quote exactly right, um, is um, he talks about wanting his patients to learn to play with their own natures. Mm -hmm. where things that have become fixed and petrified become open and fluid mm -hmm. and and where the sense of self is a little bit more we could say playful and as you said curi curious which i think is a great way of of thinking about it so the self or the ego sort of kind of opens up and allows in these other experiences that are both different from it and yet somehow deeply connected and a part of it. Hmm. These things that happen um, from the numinous and transcendent to the kind of personal uh, have to do with me somehow, even though they are not the same as me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you only get to be you for a limited period of time. Get curious about it, and you know. Right, right, and yeah. and this is Jung's idea of individuation, which is a, in a way, it's a kind of paradoxical idea because it, the way he talks about it is, uh, the process of becoming what you are. So, you are it. And at the same time, you are becoming it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a it's sort of particle and wave at the same time. There's a, a an essential being, um, but it 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 in our lifetime, it's a process of unfolding. Mm -hmm. In other schools of thought of psychotherapy and psychology, I. Definitely human, you know, definitely like Rogerian, but I think Gestalt therapy as well. There's that idea of um, the paradoxical theory of change, that the more, uh, the more I am myself, the more I change. And if we were to transplant that idea into... Uh, this Jungian way of thinking, it, it's almost like the more I open my ego to myself, the more I'll let myself in. Right. Right. It is, it is change and transformation and also kind of, um, a deeper sense of being what one is 
and has been. Um, it's both. It's both sort of stability over time, but but growth and development. So. somebody is you know we've either they're engaged in active imagination or meditation or in their dreams um they keep encountering some kind of uh form like let's say a dream that's probably the best way to do it there's some kind of reoccurring um for me it's easiest to nail it down to like a figure like a, a person or a creature or something um And they, they're not always going to have, they're most, most of the time, not going to have an idea of what exactly is this I, I'm encountering. Um, you know, it's, is it anger? Is it, you know. Um, how could they get curious and playful with, with that psychic structure? Yeah, what are some of the, the ways in? The first thing is to, um, well, to start with that place of curiosity, to not, um, to not get sort of caught up or locked in an idea of like, uh, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Um as much as uh you know what's the experience here what what am i experiencing and it, and and it goes back to what i think you were saying earlier you know that experience of the dream when we have it when we're in a dream we're also not asking is this person in front of me real uh, mm -hmm. is this setting real sometimes we even wake up with a sense of the reality of the dream that we were just in and it takes a while to go oh that that wasn't actually happening in this space that was a dream yeah and there's something about being able to return as much as possible to that what was that experience um how was it uh um how was it encountering that An initial step is through a, a kind of association process. What what occurs to me about, I had a tree in my dream. What occurs to me about that tree, about trees in general? Do I have thoughts about trees? Do I uh, have feelings about trees? Um, maybe trees are something I generally ignore and don't think much about at all. So there's something already. Here's a, an image of something that I tend to ignore, uh, that I tend to not really think about. It might have an association with a memory. It might have an association with uh, a person. Um, that level of engaging a figure, 
another way of engaging a figure if it's a, uh, say, a, a, a figure of a person in a dream. Uh, or if you're in a dream, you're in your own dream as the dream ego. One way is to uh, uh, approach the dream as an experiment by wondering, okay, what if everything that the dream ego does is wrong? Mm. Right? What if, because if the dream ego is a reflection of my habitual consciousness, the way I normally react to everything, what if I'm not reacting to these other things in the right way? What if I'm, that's a, a, a reflection of what I normally do in the face of that. So that thing that's chasing me, maybe I shouldn't be running away from, from it. Maybe it's trying to make contact with me. And maybe there's something that I need to let in that feels scary that I need to uh, allow to approach. What would that mean? And what do I think that scary thing is? That's a way sort of on a personal level to begin to engage with that kind of material. On a, a you know, a kind of broader sense, it's really helpful to have a lot of uh, kind of understanding of stories, myths, stories, fairy tales. Um, Jung at one point addressing a number of his students says, uh, in order to properly interpret a dream, you need to know the entire spiritual history of mankind. It, that may have been possible for him. I'm not sure it's possible for many of us. But to have some background in, in story, um, to understand uh, how trees are often experienced as sacred objects by different cultures, that there's a such a thing as the the world tree that is the center of the universe. And if a tree is falling on your house in a dream, then something of uh, enormous value and, and potentially transcendent meaning uh, is, has been left out of, you know, the place where we live and uh, is entering in in a destructive way. And so we need to let it in uh, before that happens. It's a big task to, you know, if, you, if you're somebody who has many dreams a month that they remember, you'd be like, okay, I think, I think this is a really relevant one. Let me research the... <laughs> Not just the history, and and now we have you know access to a lot of mankinds. Uh, yes. it's not just this Western tradition. We can you know look okay. at uh, traditions in uh, East Asia and Africa and everything. Um, and I mean, when I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm a therapist, so when I'm not reading. The things specifically for that uh, right. I, I'm usually you know 
reading comic books or watching horror movies. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like this task of, hmm. Uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is there, is there a way to, um, be, uh, is there a way to grow as a person without so much homework? Yes. Sure. Of course. Of course. Um, you know, th that kind of, uh, intensive study of mythology is not for everybody. Um, having a story sense is helpful. So, you know, you're watching horror movies, for instance. Uh, there's a lot that happens and there's a lot that just kind of having those stories uh, allows for that kind of reflection. Horror movies, comic books are deeply archetypal in, in their way. Um, you know, it, it, it can be enough to uh, bring uh, a certain curiosity and another way of engaging it without having to have all of that background, that sort of to amplify a symbol and all of that, which obviously is not for everyone. But, you know, it, it's enough to, we could take another image, right? We could take an image of having a dream with a, say a baby in it, right? It's enough to start to reflect on, well, how do you properly relate to a baby? There's something here that, hmm, that needs care. I need to hold this delicately. I need to make sure this thing is taken care of and uh, fed because it can't do it on its own. It needs my care as a, the adult and uh and hopefully, if I care for it properly, it will grow, right? So we can enter into an image just based on what the image is and think about how, what's the proper relationship to something like this? And out of that place, you can start to go, well, hmm, I wonder what that is that needs that kind of care in my life. Is there something that is helpless? I wonder what that is. It's enough to have the questions and to be, um, you know, bouncing it around with that sense of where is this? And often what will happen is as you're doing that, something else happens from some other corner of your life that kind of gives another clue. Um, or, you know, you may find that certain images keep cropping up two or three times. Well, there's a good one to start to work with. Um, you know, that one's, that one's standing out and trying to get attention, that kind of thing. So we don't necessarily have to have a lot of background, but you do have to have a kind of empathic uh, sensibility to engage with it. It's not an idea. A dream image and a symbol is not 
an idea. It's not a concept, right? It is a living reality that requires a proper relationship. If you can engage that part of yourself, you can work with it. And I think that's, if I'm following right, the religious aspect of it. You know, I, we th I think about animism, um, this belief that, that basically everything has a spirit. The, the, the tree has a spirit, a rock has a spirit. Um, I hope I'm not, you know, I, I hope I'm capturing that close enough. Um, but really having an animistic relationship with your subjectivity, with your, um, with the, the way you process everything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. And recognizing that, uh, we are, uh, a multiplicity. So we don't respond to everything in some monolithic way that we have different aspects of ourselves. And, you know, uh, there's often a fear that, that that's some kind of um, uh, recipe for multiple personality issues. Uh, you know, I'm going to be crazy because I'm talking to myself. But really it's not. It, it's... It, it, it's actually a deep respect for uh, these aspects of ourself that are active and um, that have value to bring into our lives. It seems like the entire field of psychotherapy is moving towards um, that, that kind of self-relation. Uh, mode. I mean, you could think of the rise of uh, internal family systems, uh, which is really taking off in a big way. Um, and uh, even, you know, within the cognitive behavioral tradition, some of the, uh, the third wave uh, behavioral therapies with this, you know, self as context, which is observing self, and then engaging with different parts of the mind or different systems of the mind. Um, th there seems to be a general trend towards that self in relation to parts of the self. Yeah. Why... But what that is a kind of a big question, an unfair question. Why do you think that is, or why do you think that hasn't been a bigger part of working with people and working with people's minds? Uh, for 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 a lot of the twentieth century, um, especially uh, especially with the kind of um, I don't want to say suppression, but you know, a lot of the here in America, an attack on death psychology. Um, does that seem like a fair question? Well, yeah, I mean, why is it moving um, in that direction? And, and why does it, why has it taken uh, so long? Um, 
I think that's a. It's interesting to to wonder about. Um, I think in large part, you know, uh, so much of psychotherapy, it, you know, it's so much is rooted in uh, uh, where Freud started, and. Uh, Freud's move was to make things conscious where id was, there shall the ego be. So it, it was a kind of bringing into consciousness and, and kind of uh, not engaging with things that felt verging on the occult at the time and it grows out of uh the the sort of scientific sensibility of the era uh that's moving towards the uh the emphasis of the rationalistic and uh the sort of the will driven aspect of things and it's a uh a tendency that Jung talked about a lot, which is the tendency to equate our psychology, our psyche, with consciousness, the conscious part, and and the difficulty of recognizing this uh, creative unconscious, not not the unconscious of just sort of repressed material or a kind of chaos of um, uh, appetites, but a creative unconscious of uh, a kind of unfolding. And uh, uh, for Jung, the idea that consciousness grows out of the unconscious, that that the, the full potential of it, of our psychological life starts in that unconscious state. I think one of the things that we're starting to discover through various means is uh, that that idea of a, a, a kind of unconscious matrix is actually so. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the neurosciences are confirming uh, that a large portion, up to 95% of our psychological activity is unconscious. And it, and it moves in not random, but, but specific ways. Ways that, uh, uh, from a different point of view, we would say are kind of archetypally oriented mm. it's not necessarily the language that the neurosciences use but the, the the findings are similar coming out of that Jung's method was to make the exploration on his own psyche and um, it involved dialoguing with these these inner images and at times um, 
really being challenged in terms of like holding a, a kind of sense of himself together. So it's a difficult work and it can be a dangerous work if you go to, you know, some of the the levels that uh, someone like Jung went to, or perhaps that uh, uh, before that, uh, some of the mystics of the different traditions went to. And that in itself might be one of the reasons that we stayed away from it for so long because of this fear of mysticism and, and that kind of thing. But now we have, a, a again, all these different traditions, psychological tr traditions, discovering these self-states, these part selves, these, these different uh, aspects of self. Um, and we're also more aware of the role that emotion plays and not just the rational mind, not just the, uh, the, the sense of a cognitive approach. We're also aware that uh, we are not just um, uh, uh, blank slates that are conditioned through learning uh, as the early behaviorists thought. So there's a lot of these ways in which the avoidance of an inner life uh, uh, kind of was perpetuated mm. and maybe we're starting to discover it more. Jung also felt that, you know, the the decline of religion made depth psychology possible mm. because there wasn't a container for these experiences. We needed a way to access them. He often talks about his work, his, his psychological language as being just a different metaphoric language to the religious language, a way of talking about experiences using a kind of more acceptable scientific psychological language than the old religious language. Um, and now we have a continued sort of lack of uh, um, religious containers. People are falling away from traditional religion and the, the nuns that I mentioned before, that those numbers are rising. And so maybe that puts a kind of uh, extra pressure on our inner psychological lives to, to meet these different experiences. Mm. Something like that. Yeah. You talk about the how it was very challenging for young and for others to really reckon with these um, parts of themselves uh, because there can be a loss of coherence. I also have to imagine there's a lot of frustration in uh, engaging with a part of yourself that um, that refuses to show you all of it, all of itself. Yeah. Well, without question. Yeah, you know, it, it is frustrating, and it's humbling. Mm -hmm. And this is a this is a piece of the work too. The move from ego to self, or from self to God 
is a self-emptying move. It's a it's a a humbling move that recognizes that we don't our minds don't dominate life. Mm-hmm. That life is bigger and more comprehensive and more powerful than we are. And that there are things that we are subject to that we won't necessarily understand. Um, And so some aspects of our experience don't reveal themselves just because we want to know them. Um, It's as if we haven't earned that right. Uh, Just in the same way that other people don't want us to know everything about them. Right? They, they don't want to have um, an experience where someone uh, seems to know more about them than they do. Uh, at least not unless, you know, they're entering into a therapeutic relationship or something like that. Uh, and and the, the, these other aspects are kind of like that. Um, the the desire to know everything is a part of the ego's desire to master life and to be able to manage it and control it, which is part of our our kind of cultural zeitgeist. That's we are people who are instrumentally rational. We, we make use of things for our purposes. And, and the move is that other things have their own autonomy that aren't necessarily about what we want. And sometimes the shift is moving out of what we think we want from life to having experience of what life wants out of us. And that's very humbling. Uh, and it's a piece of the work. And again, it's, it's part of the sort of the religious dimension of the work. So that idea of what life wants out of us, it brings to mind um, a phrase that I, I think might be, it, it might be a young quote or, you know, somehow I picked it up somewhere trying to learn more about young. Um, but it was, it's something along the lines of, it's an important task to, to figure out the myth you're living in. Yeah. I don't know exactly what that means, but it seems relevant to the conversation we're having. Yeah. Um, right. It, 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 the, to figure out the myth that we're living in, uh, Joseph Campbell the mythologist talks about myths to live by. Jung talks about developing a, a personal myth. Um, James Hillman, uh, a Jungian analyst, suggests that we're always living a myth, whether we know it or not. We live some kind of story. Um, the myth is the story. Uh, and we might not always know what story we live uh, or that that lives us. Um, 
And that story might not be large enough or comprehensive enough uh, to kind of uh, contain uh, the fullness of what is possible, all of our potential. Um, so, you know, uh, one story might be um, uh, someone who has a, a, a dedication to their family life. They have a spouse, they have children, they have work uh, that uh, provides for their family. And, and that's a story that maybe works for a while. Uh, and then again, we hit those places where something happens, maybe it's midlife, and there's a sense of, is this all there is? Mm. And all of a sudden the story, the myth isn't big enough. Mm -hmm. And if we don't recognize that we need to uh, discover the uh, a kind of larger dimension to the myth, we might, uh, you know, we might act out of that place in uh, less than uh, functional ways, right? Breaking up the marriage and having an affair and buying a convertible and, you know, the, the whole sort of cliche of the midlife crisis. Um, but it might mean that there's a need to develop parts of the, the, the self, the life that has been unlived to, to this point, a creative self, um, uh, a religious dimension, uh, some, uh, personal philosophy uh, that can make sense of life and death, uh, those sorts of things. So the story can be anything. The, the myth, the mythos can be anything. It can be a philosophy. It can be uh, a, a, a religious sense. It can be a creative engagement with life. We can individuate in a number of ways, uh, but it's, it's about figuring out what our story is uh, and, and what um, what in us is longing for some kind of expression. Out of respect for your time, I'm going to try to limit myself to one more question and then I'm going to, I'll quickly turn it to you to just see if there's any place that we should have gone that we didn't. Um, so my question is about, uh, I, I'm having a little trouble phrasing it, but almost what one's orientation to their ego should be. Because there, there is a way of taking in this viewpoint that is, that's almost kind of could be disparaging or antagonistic to the ego. Um, but I, my sense is that's not actually what what you're putting forward. That they're, they're uh, because because you're not really talking about like demolishing the ego. You're talking about letting more of the self in. Um, so what what is what is not the role of the ego? But if someone were to really try to live in this way. What should the, I think, orientation towards the ego be? Uh, 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, it, it's a it's a complex question. Uh, I mean, I even thinking about one's orientation to the ego means that somehow we're outside of the ego as well. And yeah. right, it, it starts to open up all, all of these questions. Um, and the truth is, the the ego as a psychological construct is it is the center of consciousness, but it's also a, a, a complex of things with which we tend to identify. Um, so even just your question talks about a little bit of disidentifying with the ego, which I think is partly the uh, a kind of task. The Jungian view, Jung's view, about the relationship between, say, the ego and the self or the ego and God is a little bit different than is often described in uh, religious uh, literature. The mystics talk about um, uh, the death of the self, which kind of means the overcoming of the ego. Uh, for Jung, The, uh, the role of the ego or the position of the ego is um, the evolution ultimately in doing this work is that he says the ego in a sense recognizes that there is this larger uh, dimension of experience, the self or God or life or the Tao or however it's uh, expressed and experienced. And it recognizes that there is a great influx of life energy and value that comes from being in connection with that dimension. And so, in a sense, what it does is it voluntarily steps aside. It, it kind of takes the back seat. It, it's not now making its own decisions, but it, it's uh, agreeing in a sense and again this is sort of we're using metaphorical language here um, to follow uh, um, this sense of where the larger experience life is coming from so it's it's not about things be, don't are no longer just about what i want but it's a felt sense of um, uh, feeling um, what has higher value, what has a higher demand on us, um, what is um, uh, 
speaking to a higher purpose than maybe what we think we want. Uh, and uh, uh, in taking an almost kind of sacrificial um, kind of attitude towards it, where we sacrifice our kind of uh, own narcissistic gratification in order to serve something that is larger and uh, felt as higher than, than us. So let me know if this works as a framing of what, of what you said. The, our psychological life, our mental life is a community. And our ego is metaphorically the body that we inhabit in that community. And it is how we will navigate through it and interact with it. But ideally, our, the motivations of the ego are for the good of the community as a whole and not just for itself. Does that, does that capture what you're saying? I think that's a. I think that's a really good image. I think that's a really good image. I mean, it it, it works, uh, sort of, uh, on an interior level, in terms of the psyche, in terms of the development of one's wholeness. Uh, it works on a kind of uh, interpersonal level and ecological level. Um, where there's a whole that's you know sort of greater than the sum of its parts and and we participate in that uh and and not just insist on our own uh need or demand so yeah i think that's a a, a, a helpful kind of frame for it so you know the way the show goes i i it, it's kind of like there's an idea and I try to grasp it. So uh, a lot of it, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, becomes subordinated to my curiosity. But uh, in our last few minutes, is there any place or, uh, that we didn't go that you would have liked to have gone? Or, uh, you know, thank you for asking. Uh, there are so many directions that are possible to go. Uh, and there's so many pieces and I'm sure we could continue the conversation for a long, long time because there, there are lots of different directions. Um, I really appreciate the, the way that you kind of uh, guided this because I thought it, it brought in a lot of the, uh, the psychological side of things uh, to kind of give context for the religious dimension and religious function that we were talking about earlier. One of the things that I, I, I like to uh, always just include uh, is a, a little uh, um, quote that Jung gives or, or, or uses when he's giving one of his seminars to a group of his students. 
And one of the things that he says, and I, I think it's really always important to remember it, is um, he says, you know, people think that when they have a name for something, uh, they think they understand it. So if they have the name, a psychological name like ego or self, they think they've grasped something. Uh, and he says, it's important to always remember that psychology is simply a stammering stopgap measure in order to be able to talk about life at all. Mm. And for me, that's sort of the underlying thing. Whether we're talking about religion and the function of religion or the specific aspects of psychology, all of it is for the function of life and for being able to think about life, talk about life, and live it. And if it's not about that, if it's about the defending the psychology or defending the religion, we've lost the point. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that's always uh, really important to kind of hold on to in all that we do. I think that, that that's a, a great place to, to cap it off. Um, I, again, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I, I, it's been a great conversation. Um, been fun. Before, thank you. Before we wrap up, can you just uh, remind the audience of your podcast and your book and where they could find that? I'm going to link that, uh, but you know, it's good to say it a bunch of times too. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so the book is Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. It's published by Chiron Publications. They're a, a Jungian publisher. It's available on Amazon and all those places. Um, and the podcast is Digital Jung. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much any platform Uh and uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's there waiting. So hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please like and subscribe. And if you're listening on a podcast app, please leave a rating. It helps a lot. Thanks.